Good morning, uh, as introduced earlier. Oh, thank you. Good morning. Thank you for a response. Good morning. Oh, there we go. See, I'm going to stay awake. I can guarantee it. Uh, I am Matt. I'm one of the pastors at a uh, sister church of this over in Bull Creek uh, called Westminster Presbyterian Church, Bull Creek, a bit of a tongue twister. Uh, and I uh, serve there with a bunch of other guys and girls. I have a beautiful wife, Mandy, and I have three girls, uh, Abigail, who's six, Jemima, who's four, and little Elizabeth, uh, who is three months old, hence the sleepless nights. Well, actually, I drove past this uh, building at 4.30am this morning as I was trying to put her to sleep, and I thought if any place, surely Frio would have a cafe open at 4.30. Alas, Macca's was the only option, and so I had a Coke instead. Well, uh, if you take notes, uh, this morning my uh, title uh, for my sermon is What Do I Owe Ya? What Do I Owe Ya? And I want to begin this morning by telling you uh, a true story about a couple uh, that I knew of many years ago. They uh, started dating, I think probably the late 90s now. Started dating and on the outside it looked like any other ordinary dating relationship. The guy would take the girl out on dates to the movies, to restaurants, to bowling, and the such like. And he would offer to pay, and she would graciously accept his offers. And as the time grew, so too too did their affection, and in the end, they ended up getting married. But what she didn't know was that despite on the outside it looking like a normal relationship, On the inside, it was quite different. Because all during the time of their dating and their engagement, he was keeping a list, a ledger, you could call it, of all the times that he had paid for her. And he was adding them all up. Not a coffee or ice cream purchase would not go by without this man getting out his pen and putting it in the ledger. And by the time they got married some few years later, the list was pretty long and her debt was, pr- debt was pretty hefty. Well, it probably won't surprise you to hear that the marriage didn't work out in the end. And it was in fact during, I think, the divorce proceedings that the list came out I frankly don't know what the judge would have done with it. I hope chuck it in a bin. And I think that's just like, it's a bit weird, isn't it? I mean, how can you build a healthy and lasting relationship of any sort, let alone a marriage, on that type of foundation? I think it's got no hope from the start. But before we get carried away wringing our hands and shaking our heads, I want to suggest something. Uh, I want to suggest that when it comes to us, you and me, those within the four walls of the church, and certainly those outside the walls of the church, we often try and do exactly the same thing when it comes to God. Build a relationship with the Lord Almighty on exactly those terms on the basis of what God owes us. Many of us, like that guy in that dysfunctional relationship, we keep a running list of things that we expect future payment for. 
We keep a ledger, now this one probably doesn't include dates and dollars, but includes any number of things that we think God might owe us for, including, but not limited to, church attendance, not getting drunk on the weekend, unlike my mates, driving the speed limit, like, unlike anyone else on the road, not teasing the class nerd, giving blood, not falling asleep in a sermon, not dropping the F-bomb at work, having better children than theirs, paying my taxes, signing pro-life petitions, sharing the gospel with a stranger, for being faithful in times of temptation and trial. It can be any number of things that we place up there in our mental ledger of stuff we expect future payment for. Now, it's true that our ledger is often kept kind of hidden away, squirreled into our subconscious. But it does reveal itself in certain situations. Sometimes it's revealed when we contemplate the afterlife. And we imagine that what lies beyond the grave for us must be good. Because we have been good. That as we greet St. Peter at the pearly grates, he'll give us a high five and a fist bump because we've earned it. Now, that might not be how it works for you, because if you've been a Christian long enough, you're kind of wily enough to avoid that one. But there are far more common ways that this hidden list of what God owes us is revealed. And I want to suggest that it's primarily revealed in those moments when life doesn't go the way it ought when we shout out on the inside, it's not fair. And the reason behind the rage is the assumption that God owes us better. I'm angry, God, and I have every right to be angry with you because I don't deserve this. And it can be triggered by anything as small as a hole in your favourite pants, the lid on your Coke at Macca's coming off at just the wrong time, the wrong person paired up with you in that work assignment. Or it can be triggered by the more serious. Losing your job, losing your best mate, losing your health, your savings, losing your spouse. All things that have us in our head from silly to serious saying, God, it's not fair, you owe me better. And the proof that God owes us better? Well, God, have you seen my list? Don't don't you remember my church attendance? Why didn't you do this to Nick? You see, Nick never pays when it's his turn. He cuts every corner. He stabs everyone in the back. He swears like a trooper. He lies as often as he breathes, frankly, Nick had it coming. I'm a good person. This this isn't fair. In short, God, you owe me better than what I've got. And can I say, I think that way at times. In fact, it's really hard in our culture at the moment to not think that way. You see, we're weaned on our rights, our freedoms, what is owed to us by our parents, our society, our government, and ultimately God. I mean, it kind of leaks and seeps through in all aspects of life, but just think about advertising. 
What does Maybelline say? You're worth it. You've got to look up for number one. You deserve it. Hey, he dumped you, but that's fine because you deserve better than him. A thousand different expressions of the same assumption at base, which is this, that whether it be God, the universe, Mother Nature, karma, sorry, karma, call it what you will, he, she, it, or they, they owe you something. And can I say, as a way of living and thinking and acting, well, it's actually okay if you're dealing with Mother Nature or Karma or with the confected God of your imagination. It's not a problem at all. After all, you've created the God in your head. If their job is to please you and serve you, if their job is to judge others and justify you, if their job is to give you what you deserve, like the God of the Australian imagination, then of course you deserve better. It's a-okay if you live with a God of la-la land. But when it comes to the true and living God, not a pet God of your creation, but the God of all creation, not a God in here, but a God kind of, well, basically everywhere, is this a wise way to relate to Him? Are we to think of Him as someone who owes us something? Well, you're in church, so you probably know the answer to that is no. You know, perhaps, probably, that God doesn't owe you anything. You might think it, but you know deep down that theologically you shouldn't think that. But, but why? Why is thinking God owes us foolish and wrong-headed? Well, you might have a few reasons, but, but Jesus gives us a less commonly thought of one here. He gives us a unusual, I think, and perhaps unexpected answer to the question, why is thinking God owes us something wrong-headed? So have a look in your Bible, the little piece of paper in front of you. Let me read chapter 17, verse 7. Jesus says this, Will any of you who has a servant plowing or keeping sheep say to him when he has come in from the field, come at once and recline at table, at my table? Jesus asks the rhetorical question, a question that he knows the right answer to because it's a rhetorical question. He says, look, if you've got a slave or a servant, after they've done the hard yakka for you out on the fields, are they coming in and sharing a beer with you? And the answer for Jesus and his audience is obvious. I mean, no, of course not. A master and his servant, a boss and his employee, they're, they're not going to have that type of relationship. But you've got to be honest, as an Aussie, that actually, that doesn't sound all that weird, does it? Do you think that it's possible that your boss, after a hard day's work, would ask you to have a couple of drinks with him? Oh, yeah, actually. If it's a Friday after five, it is kind of happy hour. Which means that we kind of, I think, we miss the outrageousness of this proposition. For a master to invite a servant to have dinner with him, in, in the first century AD, and in fact any century before that and pretty much any century after that until the 20th century, the answer is no way, Jose, not in a million years. These two groups of people don't eat together, master and slave. 
So let me try and give you a, a kind of modern update for, for kind of Australian ears. It would be a bit like this. It would be a bit like booking a holiday with a travel agent, right? And then a couple of days before you head off, you get a phone call. And he says, look, uh, Mr. Dodd, uh, I've booked 5A for you and 5B for Mrs. Dodd. And cheaply, I've booked 5C for me. I hope you don't mind if I take the aisle seat. Or think of it like this, it's like a real estate agent who, who's just kind of organized the purchase of your first property. And then on moving in day, you pull up with a truck outside your new house and they pull up outside your new house with a truck full of their stuff. And they say, I hope you don't mind if my husband and I take the main bedroom with the ensuite and you take the back room. Oh, I mean, yes, of course I mind. I'm not sharing my house with someone from LJ Hooker. I'm not taking my travel agent with me on holiday. That's absurd. That's preposterous. Well, that's what it would be like for a slave and a master to serve a meal together and share a meal together in the first century. It's crazy. That's not going to happen. What is going to happen? Verse 8 is going to happen. Will he not rather say to him, prepare supper for me and dress properly and serve me while I eat and drink and afterwards you will eat and drink? Does he thank the servant because he did what was commanded? No, obviously not, Jesus pointed. His job is to serve at the pleasure of his master. And so Jesus says, and if you're working it out, playing on at home, you've worked out that we in this situation are the servant and he is the master. Verse 10, so you also, when you have done all that you were commanded, say we are unworthy servants. We have only done what was our duty. Okay, now let's rewind to the start. Let's think about our lists. You see, a servant's job is not to keep a list of all the times he's obeyed his master and then trying to take credit for it. No, his job is to obey his master. That's what we are to do. We are to be obedient. It's like if you try and take credit for that, it's like a calculator patting itself on its back for doing addition or a phone being smug about making phone calls. Of course you wouldn't do it. There's no credit for that. That's what you are. That's what you do. And that means the lists we create are our credits that we put in our column. Jesus says there's no ticker tape parade for that. God doesn't owe you a thing for that. You, Christian, were just doing your job in obeying your master as his servant. Why is thinking God owes us something wrong-headed? It's because it radically misconstrues, misunderstands our relationship to him. God is our master and we are his slaves, his servants. There's, there's no diluting, there's no watering down that fact. He will never owe you a thing. That's how the relationship works. So let me ask you, how do you feel about that? You probably didn't wake up, go to church Sunday morning and expect to be labelled an unworthy servant at best. It just doesn't sit very well, does it? And let's embrace the discomfort. It is uncomfortable. But there's no ambiguity here. There's no alternative interpretation. Jesus says we are to think of ourselves as nothing more than his servants. 
But there is another angle, isn't there? You see, if that's all I said this morning, and if that's all that Jesus ever said on that matter, you could develop a pretty distorted view of God, couldn't you? You could view him, in fact, you would view him as a cold slave master, a heartless man, a distant father who's impossible to please, fair, just, maybe, but harsh and unkind at best. But this is clearly not the case. In fact, earlier in this very gospel, or in Luke's gospel, Christ draws a radical picture of what his mastery, of his lordship looks like. You see, remember earlier when I said that having a slave come and have a meal with his master is a bit like LJ Hooker rocking up at your house or your flight, your plane being, on your plane being accompanied by your travel agent? Well, turn, if you've got a Bible, to Luke chapter 12, verse 37. And I'll read it for you if you don't have it. 1237. Because we've just learned how crazy it is, the idea of a master and a slave having a meal together. 1237 said this. Blessed are those whose servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at table. And he will come and serve them. Do you see that? Jesus isn't just saying, actually turns out, I'm a kind of different master to the other ones and I will actually share a meal with you. No, no, he says, I will actually serve a meal to you. I will become your slave. Or as Jesus says famously in chapter chapter 11 of Matthew's Gospel, he says this, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Or he says a little later, well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little, and I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. In fact, a couple of chapters earlier, Luke describes God as a heavenly father who wishes to lavish gifts upon his children. And so we've got two pictures, don't we? The servant-hearted master, the kind father who loves his kid. That's God in column A, but God in column B right here is the master with a slave. How do you resolve the tension between the two? Because both are true, if Scripture speaks truthfully, both are true. Well, the answer... The resolution to this tension is the distinction, the difference between desert and grace. And no, I'm not talking about dinner. What is desert? Well, desert is, kind of philosophically speaking, desert is getting what you deserve. Desert, you deserve it. What you're earned, what you're owed. And grace is getting what you haven't earned, what you could never earn, what you're never owed. And At the heart of Christianity is this truth. When it comes to desert, we deserve nothing more than to call God master, to humbly give him everything and anything, to say to him that everything I have and more is yours and more besides. And those lists that we keep are at best, at best evidence of our constant failure to serve God well. God owes us nothing. 
There is no desserts. But out of his grace, his love, his kindness, he freely gives us all things. He calls us his sons and daughters. He promises us extravagant and eternal riches. He shows unimaginable patience and kindness in calling us to himself. We are made children of the King, brothers and sisters of Jesus, the Lord of the universe. And not because we've earned it. In fact, quite the opposite. The Bible is very clear that if it's based on our lists, our deeds, then we are dead and gone. Even the best of what we do is tainted by a sin that earns us death. But Christ, out of his great love for us, dies in our place, dies the death that we deserved, pays the debt that our list of deeds has accrued so that he might offer us his grace, his love, his mercy, his compassion. You want in a sentence, the gospel, the beating heart of Christianity is a story of grace and not desert. Which means as we kind of gather our threads together, as we bring the sermon home, what I want to say is this, that that what should mark us as Christians, therefore, is this grace. And specifically what I want to say is a grace that breeds in us a deep humility and a deep gratitude. Humility because we recognise that even at our best, we are on our own unworthy servants, only doing our duty. Gratitude, because as Christians, even at our very worst, our kind of 5am without any coffee, yelling at our kids, our our worst, God still calls us his children. Even at our, our worst, Christ calls us brothers and sisters. At our worst, Paul says that God loves us with an unyielding, undying, unending love, stronger than life and death, the universe and everything in it. And these two virtues, humility and gratitude, can I just say that if, if, if the church in general, if my church, if this church, if we embodied these two virtues, we would be radical and transformational in our world. Why? Well, because grace and humility, when combined, form something like a powerful tonic for the restless and anxious spirit that possesses our city and our world. And surely you know what I'm talking about. It's the anxiety that hits us from so many fronts. Whether it's the angst that arises from our performance culture, the dread of not making the grade, the self loathing that we feel when we fail to make our lofty standards, of not looking good enough, of not scoring high enough, of not rising enough through the ranks. Or it's the fear that we're missing out. FOMO, fear of missing out. It haunts many of us like a cruel ghost, forever peering over our shoulder as we scroll through our feeds, as we watch the TV, and it whispers in our ear that we could We should, we must do something better than what we're currently doing. And it's gratitude and humility taken together that forms a kind of heavenly incantation 
that breaks this dark enchantment that looms over our world. How so? What, what do I mean by that? Well, it's because humility embraces the fact that we are unworthy servants. There is nothing that we can do now or in eternity that will ever mean that God owes us. His favour will never be earned. And that means that nothing that we do can make us more significant or worthy of God's grace. He gives it to us, not because we owed it, but because he loves us. And you see, when, when you embrace that, when you, when you live out that truth of that undeserved love, then, then the performance culture, then the show, then the endless anxiety over achievements, it just disappears. You see, if all that I am is a servant, right, if that's what defines me, then I'm no longer driven by the marks I get or the promotions I earn or the likes and hearts and retweets I get. I don't want to prove to the world that I'm the best that I am because the best that I am, all that I am is a servant of Christ. There's no improving upon that. There's no deserving God's favour. And if we're honest, it's often our pride that drives us to perform and our pride that feeds our fear of failure. And it's humility which liberates us. It gives us rest and peace in our soul. My, my job is to serve Jesus. Not your expectations, not your expectations, not my expectations or my family's expectations. I'm just there for Jesus. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Well, if that's humility, how does... How does Gratitude exercise the demon of anxiety. Well, it's because so much of our anxiety is fed by greed and envy. A greed for more than we currently have. And this fear of missing out, FOMO, it's like weaponized envy and its ammunition is our discontentment, our unhappiness with what we have. I want to be doing what they're doing. I want to be eating what they're eating. I want to be wearing what they're wearing. I want to be sleeping with who they're sleeping with. I want it all. And I, and I know I'm not going to get it, and so I live in a fit of anxiety and radical discontentment. And gratitude said, stop. Can't you see what God has given you? He's made you his son and his daughter. He's lavered grace upon grace. He lives within you by his spirit. He's given you all things in Christ. Isn't that amazing? And you didn't deserve it. You didn't earn it. It was never performed. He just gave it to you. How amazing is that? And then if God has given you those things, you can trust him. If he's given you the big stuff, you can trust him in the small stuff. You can be learn to be grateful for your family or your lack thereof, your house or your lack thereof, your looks, your academic record, your lot in life. You can be grateful for that because if he's given you the big stuff, he's going to love you in the small stuff too. And to close, that, that grateful and humble person is a radically peaceful, restful presence in a culture of high anxiety. And what a powerful witness it would be to the world out here, to the world out there as it stops by in here, 
if we were marked by such a gratitude and humility. In fact, we would be like this, to close. We would be an oasis of peace and calm in a desert of dissatisfaction and anxiety because we are marked by a humility and a gratitude that comes from knowing, although we are unworthy servants at best, God has made us his sons and daughters. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much that you loved us in Christ. Thank you that although he is our master, out of grace he is also our brother. That we are unworthy servants and yet made by you your sons and daughters. And may that work and mark deep within our soul a gratitude and a humility that looks different to the world around as they see a people who live differently because of it. In Jesus' name, amen. Please stand and sing with us. I laugh no more, owning. We were bought at a price. Living not for our own will, but for you, our Lord Christ. 